Hey, Steminists, it's Emlyn Gremlin here with a quick announcement. You are currently listening to an older episode of Stem Vital, one in which we had not quite figured out how to turn the microphone on. So if the audio quality bothers you, I urge you to skip ahead to episode 17, where we are oh so crisp and oh so clean. That wasn't supposed to rhyme, but it just worked out that way. Okay, here's the app. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil store. She put the bones together for the and science was the province of men of noble birth But I take Mary and younger than Stumpfortune Hello, this is Stem Fatal Part 2, even though this is a different episode It's a different episode a week later Yeah, we're recording it the same day So we're a little loopy Yeah But as... it is a new episode as our last episode. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I am Emlyn Gremlin. I'm Emma Dilemma. And this is it. Again. It's still it. It keeps going. Did we going. say Stem Fatale? Is this Stem Fatale? This is Stem Fatale. A Women in Science History <laughs> podcast. Wait, we probably did say that. So I think we're just going to jump in because yeah. we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. And I'm ready to do it some more. It's my turn. <laughs> Go um, for it. I've got a question for you, Emma. I'm ready. If you wanted to know the structure of a compound, what would you do? I would filter it out from other compounds. Okay, I like it. Do some titration. I remember oh. that word from Orgo Lab. Oh my. And then I would put it in a spectrophotometer. No, wait, NMS. What's that? Do you remember doing that in Orgo Lab? <laughs> I know spectrophotometer. That's the one that gives you the little, Wavelengths. like, um, point, the peaks. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. That's what And tells you what the, I think that tells you what the molecular makeup is. Oh. But, but it doesn't tell you what the structure is. But doesn't, can't you uh, determine the structure from the makeup? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> can you? I don't know. Maybe. You tell me. All right. I guess. Well, w- one, one could also use... X-ray crystallography. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Do you know who I'm going to talk about today? No. Okay, cool. (laughs) Marie Curie? No. No. She did X-ray stuff. Yeah. This is the the mother of X-ray crystallography. (laughs) Oh. Of proteins. She's a very specific mother. Okay. This is Dorothy Hodgkin. Oh, okay. Nice. What do you know about Dorothy Hodgkin? I guess just what you just said. <laughs> just because I, I just told like you? Yeah. <laughs> or did she figure out a cure for some disease? She didn't find any cure for diseases, but she did figure out a lot about certain important things, like the structure of penicillin and oh, insulin and stuff like that. Oh, that's maybe what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, I suck at this. No, you did better than I would have. Uh, my memory is so bad, because, like, I've definitely read about Dorothy Hodgkin yeah. a lot. She's a big... I know. I feel like she's... I feel like Mary Curie and Rosalind Franklin have a lot more press, but she also yeah. did a lot of stuff. And Dorothy Hodgkin. Her name is familiar. Yeah. 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 Well, you will know Wait, things after related today. related to Hodgkin's lymphoma? I don't think so. Okay. She did not have Hodgkin's lymphoma. <laughs> okay. And she did not, I don't think, discover anything about Hodgkin's yeah, lymphoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, Dorothy Hodgkin was born Dorothy Crawfoot on May 12, 1910 in Cairo, where her Whoa, father... What? Yeah, so she was born in Cairo, where her father, John Winter Crawfoot, 
worked in the Egyptian education service, working in education and archaeology. So he was an archaeologist. But he was British. But he, they're British. Yeah. Yes. And her mother, Grace Mary Crawfoot, was an authority on early weaving techniques, an excellent botanist, and uh, later on illustrated the flora of Sudan. Whoa. So she's a cool, cool lady, too. She mostly did things and followed uh, where her husband was. Yeah. Um, but she kind of found her own niche. Yeah. So in 1914, when Dorothy is four... It's the start of World War Two. One, the start of World <laughs> War One. I. <laughs> I know which war it is. And Dorothy and her sisters were sent to live with their grandparents near Worthing, UK, while her parents moved to Sudan. Wow! So that her father could work on archaeology and education. Oh my god! So they stayed. I don't. It doesn't seem like maybe England was the best place to be during World War One, but yeah, you know. Anyways, after World War One. Dorothy visited Sudan and became very fond of the country. And while there, her parents' friend, Dr. A.F. Joseph, it's a weird last name. Yeah. He gave Dorothy this crystal called Ilmenonite. No, not, not Mennonite. Uh, Ilmenite. 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 Okay. Which is like black and iron rich. Uh-huh. And he helped her analyze this rock Okay, I thought this was going into like weird crystal, like. Well, I mean, it, it yeah. skirts Except crystals. I'm not going to judge anyone. Yeah, either. but he piqued her interest both in chemistry and in crystals. Huh. Yeah, but despite these trips to Sudan, most of Dorothy's childhood was spent in Geldeston in Norfolk, England, where she went to the Sir John Lemon School. <laughs> no. From Lemon, <laughs> such a good name. Yeah. From uh, 1921 to 1928, so between the ages of, like, 11 and 18. Go ahead. And after World War I ended, her parents uh, would work abroad during the year and then would come back to England during the summer and hang out. What a cool life. Yeah. And so while at the Sir John Lemon School, (laughs) Dorothy Crawfoot and another girl, uh, Nora Pusey. No. It's P-U-S-E-Y. How are you going to pronounce that one? <laughs> That's like... I can't get into this. <laughs> like, uh, like a hard I U? Like my family listens to this podcast now. Sorry. Shout out to my fam. <laughs> Shout out to fam. Sorry, guys. Anyways. Wait. Anyways, so Nora... Nora. Let's just call her by her first name. Yeah. So Dorothy and Nora were allowed to join the boys' chemistry class. And during this time, she learned chemistry and also read Sir William Bragg's book called Concerning the Nature of Things. Hmm. And on a chapter on crystals, Sir Bragg discusses how scientists could use x-rays to reveal the three-dimensional pattern of atoms within crystals. Wow. So early on, she's reading some more educational books than I read when I was, like, in high school. Is that, like, Bragg's Apple Cider Bragg? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Just a lot of really common British <laughs> yeah. names. Yeah. But he wrote in his book, Let us realize that in the last 25 years or so, we have been given, so to speak, new eyes. The discovery of x-rays has increased the keenness of our oh. vision a thousand times, and we can now see the individual atoms and molecules. That's cool. Yeah. And so, uh, at this time, to study crystals using x-ray crystallography, one would 
shoot x-rays at a crystal. Yeah. And then they'd study how the x-rays got diffracted off of the different planes that make up the crystal structure. And based on that, you could do a bunch of math and figure out what the actual structure of those crystals were. And this technique was developed by Bragg and his son, William Lawrence Bragg, and caused this father and son to win the 1915 Nobel Prize in Physics. Whoa. So this technique was pretty new. And so in a BBC interview later on, she said, I really decided then that this was what I would do, and it was very exciting. So like, still in high school, she's like, all right, I'm going to study X-ray crystallography. Wow. No biggie deal. That happens a lot. These women just know. (sighs) I didn't know. I didn't know. I still don't know. I still don't know. I still don't know. (laughs) I think that's okay, too. Yeah, I agree. So uh, she attended Somerville College, which was a women's college constituent of the University of Oxford. So University of Oxford has, like, a bunch of different colleges. Yeah. And this is one of them. And for her first year or so, she studied archaeology and chemistry. And she then attended a special course in crystallography, Crystallography is the branch of science concerned with the structure and properties of crystals. And her tutorial at the time encouraged her to then do research in x-ray crystallography working with H.M. Powell on her first year project. Yeah, this was such a new field that when Dorothy Crawford entered the field, uh, it was ripe for exploration and discovery. So she got into this topic at the right time to really make a difference in the field. So... Dorothy graduated from university with first-class honors and then went to Cambridge to study with John Desmond Burnell in 1932. And while working on her PhD, in collaboration with Dr. Burnell, they determined the three-dimensional structure of several complex organic molecules that were important to the functioning of living organisms. Wow. So previously, X-ray crystallography had been important or had been used to primarily study inorganic molecules. Yeah. However, what they found out was that you could crystallize a protein, and then you could do x-ray crystallography to figure out the structure of that protein. And in 1934, uh, Bernal and Crowfoot, they were sent crystals of the enzyme pepsin, which is one of those main digestive enzymes in the Mm. stomach. And Bernal and Crowfoot... Uh, wrote up their work on pepsin structure, marking the beginning of protein crystallography. Pepsin? An acid? Or yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it's a digestive acid. That makes sense. Yeah. Pepsin AC mm-hmm. reduces pepsin. Yep. It's all okay. coming together. It's all coming together for you. Um, I have an ulcer. <laughs> grad school is stressful. Um, so, <laughs> the paper... This paper on pepsin starts, Four weeks ago, Dr. Glenn Milliken brought us some crystals of pepsin. Don't you wish today you could write a paper and say that? Four weeks ago, I got some data, and now I have a... Oh, it was a nature paper. Yeah. BT dubs. It's like a a page and a half long, probably, where they're just like, Hey, we saw this. This is what it looks like. Yeah, it's awesome. We We rocked the world right now. Anyways, so yeah, this paper was published in Nature, and in this paper they showed for the first time that a protein had a regular molecular structure, and uh, after this paper, she received her PhD from Cambridge in 1937. Wow. And during the same year, she married Thomas Hodgkin, an authority on African history. Ah. 
an yeah. authority. Well, he wasn't yet a professor, so he. I think uh, he, I'm not sure if he was a PhD student, but yeah. like they both went on. So after receiving her PhD, Dorothy Hodgkin was offered a research fellowship back at Somerville College in Oxford, and so oh. she returned in 1934 along with her husband Thomas and. Both of them had appointments at Oxford University at that nice. point. Yeah. So I don't know. I would imagine maybe he was a grad student when yeah, they were both at Cambridge. Some researcher, I guess. But I don't know, so yeah. I, I just called him an authority. Like, <laughs> it just sounds so, like, so, official without being an actual title. Yeah. Like, you yeah. have an academia. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so while they were in Oxford, they went on to raise three children uh, with the help Dang. of Thomas Hodgkin's parents. Hey, so. is this... This is the second one we've talked about with children. Yeah. That's crazy. That it's I the mean, only second one? That yeah, has, it's our, what, this will 13th be our 12th, episode. 13th episode. Yeah. Well, um, Chang Shung Wu had one kid. Oh, that's right. Okay. I'm trying to think of any of the other ones. I don't think any of the women I've talked about had children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's I think difficult. it was really hard yeah. then to do both things because a lot to think of when, but. Side note. Side note. <laughs> it's it's difficult, but it can be done. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. True. Yeah, I think. Okay, so during this time, they're back in Oxford, and chemists were vigorously debating about the structure of organic materials, because it was really hard to figure right. out the structure, so there was a lot of debate, and there was also a lot of debate about what's the best way to actually get at the structure of molecules. Yeah. And so during this time, Dorothy Hodgkin, now Dr. Dorothy Hodgkin, she suggested that the structure of such complex organic molecules might be discovered by X-ray crystallography rather than by traditional chemical means. Mm. And and then in 1943, scientists discovered that penicillin had a sulfur atom in it. And this kind of led to two different camps about hypotheses for the structure of penicillin, which I'm not going to get into because they're very chemical and I didn't really understand what any of the words meant. Cool. But there were two camps thinking the structure might be different, right? I wouldn't understand it either. Yeah. And so in the mid-1940s, Dorothy and her lab had determined the structure of penicillin in the absence of known chemical formula and contrary to suggested evidence. And they showed that a four-membered beta-lactam ring fused to a five-membered ring. That's what they found. So one of the camps won. They had, they had thought that was what it might be. But so without any kind of chemical yeah. evidence, they had figured out what the structure was. Wow. Just using x-ray crystallography. However, in order to convince some scientists that they had determined the structure of penicillin and not some degraded version because they have to crystallize penicillin and then look at its structure they showed that the penicillin crystals that they had used in the x-ray crystallography still had antibacterial properties nice so that showed that it's still it should be still the same structure still the same like chemical being produced by the fungus yeah and so at this time world war ii was still raging on and work on penicillin was considered a wartime secret I'm guessing it's because if one side of the war has penicillin and the other side doesn't. Oh, they could cure a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And the other the other camp couldn't. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Which I have never thought of as a wartime secret. Yeah, but. I didn't realize it was discovered during a war either. 
you know, during yeah, the I think it was war. discovered maybe before, but like the structure, like, yeah, there was probably the a lot of and yeah, yeah, a lot of information was being discovered during World War II, so they were keeping that pretty yeah lock and key. So thus, the structure of penicillin was not published. So Dorothy had determined the structure of penicillin, but it wasn't published until ne- December 1945. And then even when it was published, it was like super ambiguous. So like not very helpful. They were like, we figured it out. It's right. <laughs> However, in 1949, the unambiguous structure of penicillin was published in a thousand page <laughs> monograph entitled The oh, Chemistry no. of Penicillin. Oh my God. Which is a very fun summer reading. A thousand pages? Yeah, on the structure of penicillin. Would anyone read that? I mean, someone's got to have. What are you saying? A thousand pages? I think it was It was pretty much all of the secret... Well, it was all of the secret wartime penicillin research. Oh. I think all put down in a monograph. Because oh. nobody could publish oh, for a oh, while. Oh, so oh, I think oh. it's not, just, it's not gotcha. just Hodgkin's research. It's like a bunch of research on penicillin. Dang. And they're saying like... Some of the research, they still included it, but it was already out of date. So they, have like, like they could probably have edited it down to yeah, like 500 like, pages. So this is papers and the papers citing those papers and the papers <laughs> citing those papers. Yeah, and the papers saying that those three groups of papers were wrong. Are up, they've updated yeah. the other papers included in the monograph. Or monolith? Yeah. Wait, what's the word? Monograph. Monograph. Okay. Monolith. I don't know what it is. Two thousand one. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Okay, so then also during the nineteen forties, Margaret Roberts. You know who Margaret Roberts is no, going to be? Margaret Roberts, who later became Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Oh shit! Was taught by uh, Hodgkin and worked in her lab for her fourth year project. Oh, I always forgot that she... Did she have a PhD or was she just a degree in chemistry or something? Um, I did read this, but I don't remember. I think she just got her bachelor's, bachelor's yeah. in science and then... Yeah. Yeah. So she has a bachelor's in science, but I don't think she got a further right. degree. Okay. But I'm not positive. But yeah, so then while Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, she reportedly installed a portrait of Dorothy Hodgkin in Downing Street, which I guess is kind of parallel to the White House. It's like all of oh, the gotcha. big like buildings Parliament were. Yeah. Or... I think it's where all, it's like the offices of the prime minister and all of these uh, various like yes. high end offices. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, apparently Dorothy had her portrait in there during this time. (laughs) That's cool. And Margaret Thatcher also sought advice from Hodgkin on both scientific matters and on conditions in Eastern Europe, despite Margaret Thatcher being a conservative and Hodgkin being a member of the Labour Party. So, they were on very different, like, polar opposite parties. But, yeah. And apparently Margaret Thatcher would, like, practice and rehearse for like a week before her meetings with Hodgkin as if she was still like in college. That's cool. So after Hodgkin determined the structure of penicillin, she moved on to working on vitamin B12. And at the time, little was known about the structure of B12, but they were figuring out that it was very important. Like it was an essential element that you, essential vitamin that you needed in your body. 
And so when B-12 was finally isolated, purified, and crystallized, Hodgkin immediately got to work with her collaborators Jenny Pickworth and John Robertson trying to understand its structure. However, Dorothy realized quickly that B-12 was much more complicated, was a much more complicated molecule than penicillin, and that instead of solving the structure using two-dimensional projections, which I guess is, they could simplify it to two-dimensional projections and try to understand the structure, she would need to use three-dimensional projections to solve the structure, so she needed higher power computers. This was an enormous undertaking and also required high computational power than she had needed before. She also decided rather characteristically and diplomatically that the problem was large enough for two groups to work on and that they should just keep in touch. She worked on this problem while John White at Princeton tried to solve the structure of B12 as well. So she was very collaborative and was just like, "Eh, this seems like a really big problem. We can have multiple people working on it. At the same time... Hodgkin got in touch with a chemistry professor at UCLA who had access to one of the most powerful computers in the world at the time. And his name was Ken Trueblood. (gasps) What a name! Ken Trueblood! I was really happy when I... I thought when you... (laughs) So I, I I told Emma that I was gonna play this like True Blood theme song, yeah, and no, in I, reference to the woman of the day, and she was very confused. I either thought that a she was a vampire, good guess. B she was making love to a vampire, <laughs> <laughs> or C. She studied like something about blood. Mm, yeah, like a vampire bat. Yeah researcher and it's none of those no she just worked with a guy named ken trueblood i love it (laughs) so uh dorothy hodgkin and ken trueblood worked on the structure of b12 and they sent communications back and forth via ground mail however hodgkin got so excited by this work that she insisted on them sending messages via air mail so they could get them earlier which i guess was a very it seems expensive at the time and they used the supercomputer mostly at night when there was less demand for it. Yeah. And it took almost two years of hard computational work before they were able to determine the structure of vitamin B12. Wow. And to understand how complex this molecule was, the chemical formula is it has 63 carbon atoms, yeah. 88 hydrogen atoms, a cobalt atom, 14 nitrogen atoms, 14 oxygen atoms, and then a phosphorus. And its molecular weight is almost 1,400 grams per mole. Oh, my God. So that's a big molecule to try to figure out. So that's why it took so much computation power. It's thought that Hodgkin felt that she had to openly defend the fact that the derivation of both the chemical formula and the structure was hers. So I guess there was some hubbub about whether or not she was actually the one that had, like, derived this large structure. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I did it. It's me. <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> like, fuck off True Blood, or...? No, no, I think it's fuck off everybody else. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. 
now that the structure of B12 was known, more than 100 chemists worked together to synthesize this molecule, um, which has many medical applications since then, such as the treatment of certain types of anemia. Yeah. So figuring out the structure was kind of the first step to be able to synthesize things to then be able to use it in, like, medical purposes. Yeah. Okay. So... Even before she'd worked on B12, back in 1934, she'd been interested in the structure of insulin. However, evidence suggested that the molecular weight of insulin was roughly 36,000 grams per mole. Which is, sounds complicated. Yeah. This turns out to not to be true and to be a huge overestimate <laughs> of what it is. But that's, for whatever reason, that's yeah. what how, how big they thought it was. It's still big, but it's not... That must be, like... Based on its chemical formula, they somehow... I, they don't think they knew their chem- its chemical oh. formula, so I think it's based on other properties. Just looking at it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's red. I don't know. Yeah. Wait, no, insulin's not. Red. No, no, that's B12. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, however, at the time, uh, she did take the first x-ray photographs of these insulin crystals and collected data on these crystals... But the chemical structure of insulin wouldn't be discovered for another 35 years just because the technology wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. However, in 1969, the structure of insulin was finally announced at the International Union of Crystallography Meetings in Stony Brook, New York. And this was a giant group effort led by Hodgkin with many chemists finding like different pieces of the puzzle. So 35 years, people were working on different pieces. I'm not going to get into it at all. Yeah. But... They each kind of figured out different properties or different aspects of this giant molecule that allowed them in 1969 to actually put it all together and figure out what the what? structure of this chemical was. Do you know, like, why insulin versus other hormones? Like Why she was interested in it? Yeah, or, like, why this group was interested in it. Or I mean, I, th- I mean, there's, like, trying to figure out the structure of yeah. it so you could synthesize insulin for diabetes yeah. and stuff like that. I'm not sure why it was this over other things, but... Huh. But, yeah, so included in this group effort were chemists such as Marjorie Hardling, Margaret Adams, Neil Isaacs, Ted Baker, Guy Dodon, Tom Blundell, Eleanor Dodson, and uh, Mama Namana Vijahan. The first name is amazing, and yeah. I love it. I have a little trouble with the it's last a name. Lot. Okay, anyways, so there's a lot of people that helped with the discovery of insulin. <laughs> and so knowledge of the 3D structure of insulin is crucial for synthesizing insulin for medical use, yeah. especially important for diabetes. Yeah. In 1964, <laughs> she won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for her determinations by X-ray techniques of the structures of important biochemical substances. Cool. Yeah. So she's a Nobel Prize winner. She was the second woman to win a Nobel Prize. She is the third third woman. She's the only non-Curie woman to ever win the prize in chemistry in the UK. Because it was Marie Curie and And then then her daughter. Irene. Irene Curie, Curie, yeah. And then... then, Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Only (laughs) non-Curie in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a dynasty. So I found it funny. It was clear that the UK had a lot of trouble dealing with her being a female and getting the oh, Nobel Prize. Really? And you could kind of tell this by some of the titles of the articles about her winning the Nobel Prize. So at the time, the Daily Mail reported 
The title of their article was Oxford Housewife Wins Nobel. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. One, not a housewife. She has a fucking job. Yeah. Two, that's the, she, she's that's, a researcher. Uh, if she didn't have kids, it wouldn't be Oxford Housewife. It would, it would be, be sad, lonely lady <laughs> wins Nobel. Like, I think they were just not gonna... uh, There's no winning. Uh Uh-uh. That's terrible. Yeah, so the Telegraph wrote, British woman wins Nobel Prize, prize to mother of three. Like, why why does that need to be in the title? It doesn't. No. Why doesn't it say what she won the Nobel Prize for? Wait, Marie Curie wasn't from the UK. I'd scratch that. No. No. I said that earlier. That's not true. Dorothy Hodgkin remains the only woman from the UK to win a scientific Nobel Prize. Oh, oh, I missed that anyway. Yeah. Maybe other people missed it. <laughs> well, I'm just, we're yeah. doing a corrections corner right now, here, right here, right now. But yeah. So, so yeah, Oxford hard. Housewife wins Nobel. It's like. Insane. I just want to like, flip them all can off. Can you believe, like, she's just been cleaning the house she's, all And day. then all of a she sudden she Nobel. discovered this Nobel. She was cooking dinner and she got a Nobel Prize. <laughs> she was putting her lunches in their lunchbox. What a lucky lady. I don't know, happened to cross the Nobel Prize. <laughs> that is so insane. <laughs> Clearly I'm yeah. adding more. Yeah, isn't that a crazy title? I wonder if she was furious or if she just didn't care. I mean, she had a fucking Nobel. Isn't it like, how much money is it? Yeah, it's a lot of money. I don't know if it was a million dollars then, but... With inflation. I don't know what inflation is. Anyways, no, I do. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, I'm going to now go to some of her kind of larger, less scientific achievements during this time. So, during the 1960s and 1970s, Dorothy Hodgkin was very concerned about the welfare of scientists that lived in countries that were adversaries of the U.S. and the U.K. Mm. Because it's very hard to be a scientist, I feel like, if you're at, you know, war, at conflict with the U.S. and the U.K. And you can't, there's less traveling, there's a lot of bans, stuff like that. Yeah. So, such as the Soviet Union, China, and North Vietnam. And Dorothy herself had experienced setbacks due to political rivalries. Because of her husband's close ties with the Communist Party, uh, Dorothy was... What? (laughs) Yeah. I don't think they... I'm not sure he was a communist, but he was closely aligned with the Communist Party. Dorothy was denied a U.S. visa in 1953, and she was subsequently denied visas to the U.S. until she received a waiver by the CIA. Couldn't find any more information about that. I mean, I think... Guess they were like, you seem okay. Yeah, there was... The, like, what was it called? The Red Scare mm-hmm. or something, where people were just being so rounded up, also. Yeah. yeah, of anyone with any communist ties that they weren't allowed in America. And then yeah. they were like, oh, you're fine, yeah. actually. Yeah. And then from 1976 to 1988, Dorothy was the chair of the Pugwash organization. <gasps> is that what I think it is? I don't know what, uh, what do you think it is? <laughs> uh, like, you bring your pugs to a bathing station. <laughs> yes, how did you know? <laughs> yeah, she thought dirty dogs were really the worst thing. <laughs> dirty dogs. Dirty dogs. No, the Pugwash organization was founded after the Russell Einstein Manifesto of 1955. Wow. 
which called for a conference of scientists to discuss and assess the dangers of weapons of mass destruction. Oh, that's definitely different than Pugwash. <laughs> less cute. Very much less cute. And Pugwash's main objective was and is the elimination of all weapons of mass destruction, both yeah. nuclear, chemical, and biological, and of war as a social institution to settle international disputes. Wow. To that extent, peaceful resolution of conflicts through dialogue and mutual understanding is an essential part of Pugwash activities that is particularly relevant when and where nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction are deployed or could be used. I'm surprised this that Pugwash didn't come up as researching. I know. I th- I kept thinking you might say it yeah. in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. I guess just not enough European ties for Katsuko. Mm, maybe, yeah. yeah. And so Dorothy accepted the Lenin Peace Prize from the Soviet government in 1987 wow. in recognition of her work for peace and uh, for peace <laughs> for feces no, for peace <laughs> and disarmament. Oh. And then in 1995, the Pugwash Conference and its founder Joseph Rotblat uh, jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts on nuclear disarmament. Wow. Yeah. She's got Nobel Prizes flying around so her. she has, like, a partial Nobel Peace I don't, Prize? Or she, was, not... she was just the chair for a certain amount of time. Yeah. It happened to be longer than anybody else was chair. But I think it's just the organization as a whole and then the founder that got the Peace Prize. But she's yeah. still, you know, kind of tied into it. And then, kind of on a health note, since the age of 24, Dorothy had suffered from rheumatoid arthritis... And as the years progressed, this disease led to deformities in her hands and feet and eventually caused her to spend most of her time in a wheelchair. Nevertheless, she persisted and remained active in her field all of her life. And in fact, in 1993, at the age of 83, she even attended the International Union of Crystallography Meetings in Beijing. Wow. Uh, And then Dorothy Hodgkin died after a stroke in her home in Ilmington, on July 29th, 1994, at the age of 84. So, like, Dang. less than a year later. Yeah. And additional awards that Dorothy got was she was the president of the International Union of Crystallography from 1972 to 1975. She became a fellow of the Royal Society in 1946, uh, received the Royal Society Medal in 1956, and became the second woman to receive the British Order of Merit in 1965 which is awarded, quote, at the monarch's pleasure. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> and that's Dorothy Hodgkin. Oh, man, she's cool. Yeah, she's very cool. Yeah, there was a quote from one of Dorothy Hodgkin's friends after she got, once she became a fellow of the Royal Society, and I didn't write it down, but it was like, if a, woman, if, if a mother of three can become a fellow of the Royal Society, <laughs> then we can do anything. <laughs> I can't believe you brought up the Royal Society. I know. I can't escape the Royal (laughs) Society. Society. I know. Not really. You just hate me talking about it. I hate you talking. I can talk about it. You just can't talk about it anymore. No. It's fine. They're good. I have a feeling there are many members of the Royal Society. (laughs) I have a feeling it's not our last time talking about the Royal Society. It's not. The Royal Society. I won't go there. Can't make me. I love it. Okay, welcome back, everybody. (laughs) This is our women who work section where we give shout outs to 
badass female scientists making history in science today. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I don't have anything. It's just I you. I thought you were going to shout out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was oh, yeah. like, I'm so unprepared. I thought, it was, <laughs> I thought you were doing things. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot to give a shout out to uh, our friend Catalina, who suggested doing Dorothy Hodgkin this week. Yeah. So thank you, Catalina. She's going to become a professor in the next couple months yay. at Humboldt State University. Yay. So yay, Catalina. Okay. Cool. Okay. So our longer shout out today goes to Erica Morley and her collaborator, Daniel Robert, who published a study this week in Current Biology. Um, and this one's kind of close to my heart. You probably saw this. I saw one that was about spiders and electromagnetic, yeah. Yeah. and I was like, I'm going to leave that. that. Okay, yeah. nice. Tell me everything. <laughs> so they found that spiders can detect electric fields. Nice. And they use electric fields in their ballooning behavior. What are the, What is their ballooning behavior? It's the coolest thing that they do. One method that spiders use in dispersal is ballooning. Okay. And it's essentially like they shoot a bunch of silk, or they don't shoot, but they let a bunch of silk out of their spinnerets. Uh-huh. And for a long time, people believed that this bunch of silk would catch in the wind, and this would carry spiders miles and miles through the air. Okay. So they use a ton of silk, which is really light and weight, to basically fly through the air and disperse really long distances. Okay. Sort of like if you were holding on to a balloon. Yeah. And it, you let it carry you, like, miles or whatever. Okay. And it's one of... It's a really cool behavior, and it's one of the first sort of... Or not first, but it's one of the animal behaviors that was really intricately described in Darwin's, like, Voyage on the Beagle. Oh, okay. Because he noticed them landing on his ship out at sea, which is kind of weird, yeah. right? Like, spiders out at sea, where they're probably not going to catch a lot of things, or I don't know. But he noticed them landing on his ship and doing this behavior, which involves, like, they walk up high onto some kind of stalk, like even just a blade of grass or maybe onto a tree or a flower or something. Um, these days they'll use like human structures too, buildings, poles, whatever. They walk up kind of high in the air and then they do a behavior called tiptoeing, uh-huh. which is cute. They literally like, they don't really have feet, but they kind of have spider feet which are like jointed ends of their legs okay which bend a tiny bit but when they're tiptoeing they straighten them so they're really like on the tips of their legs <laughs> i know it's ridiculous because it, it looks like they're doing ballet yes exactly nice. like they're on point shoes nice yeah and then they let out silk and that silk gets caught in the air and they fly away nice However, this behavior has been noticed on days when it's not windy. Okay. And so people have hypothesized for a long time, actually, that maybe wind isn't involved, but electric fields that are present in our atmosphere might be responsible for this behavior. Or both. A combination of both, maybe. Okay. And so... 
In this paper by Erica Morley and Daniel Robert, they actually tested this for the first time ever in spiders. So, let's see. The highest parts of our atmosphere have a positive charge, and the planet's surface has a negative charge, which leads to electromagnetic fields throughout our atmosphere. Okay. And people have thought that this might be responsible for ballooning behavior because... As a spider emits emits silk from its spinnerets, that silk picks up a negative charge, which I didn't realize. Ed Yong explained this in the Atlantic article that I'll post with this podcast. He says that as spiders, like, move up a twig or leaf or blade, blade of grass, the plants, which are, you know, connected to the earth... Mm-hmm have the same negative charge as the ground that they grow on. Okay. But they protrude into positively charged air. And this creates substantial electrical fields between the air around them and the tips of their leaves and branches. And the spiders that are ballooning from these tips of their leaves and branches. So that's sort of like the theoretical background for this study. And in the paper, Erica and Daniel put spiders into a box with aluminum plates on the top and the bottom to create and connected to a high voltage power supply that created electromagnetic field within the box. Okay. And they saw that just the presence of these vertical electrical fields elicited ballooning behavior and takeoff in the spiders. Interesting. And then they showed that Mechanosensory hairs on spiders called trichobothria, which are just little hairs on their legs, Mm -hmm. are activated by weak electric fields. So spiders can actually feel the electric fields in the same way as they would feel a breeze. So their hairs would stand up in the electric fields. Uh And it was really cool because they would turn the power supply on and the spiders would start ballooning. And they would turn it off and the spiders would drop. Huh. Isn't that crazy? That's very cool. So, yeah. So is it that they have a stronger electrical field when they're higher up? And so, like, yeah. is it that they can tell that they're high enough that they should balloon? Um, I'm, just... I'm not sure. I think that going up high allows us for this behavior mm-hmm. because, first of all, there's more charge i guess created between them and the ground yeah and um and this only really occurs i think in spiderlings or it occurs more in the tiniest of spiders Duh. than like more often than in adult spiders okay. as far as i know yeah so they're pretty small so even this like even a small electric field might be able to carry a tiny spider, much like rubbing a balloon on your head yeah, makes your fair. hair stand okay. up. Yeah, that's very cool. So, so they can get, they can use that instead of just wind. Right. Yeah, that's very cool. So it definitely ex- could explain and probably does explain how they could fly like that on days that aren't very windy. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So really awesome and. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's wonderful. That's my shout out for today. I wish I could fly that way. I know. Can you imagine? 
How high would it, we have to go up? I guess we don't probably don't aren't light enough at all. No. <laughs> We'd always be too heavy for that. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's not gonna happen. No. Maybe if we had a balloon, enough balloons, enough. Yes, if we had. I mean, if we just go into a hot air balloon. Yeah. Then we could do do it, <laughs> but I think we've lost. Yeah. Our way then. But anyway, it does seem like so the silk must also be necessary for carrying them. Mm-hmm. But the hairs themselves maybe trigger the behavior yeah. in, in them outputting the silk at all, which is then carried by the electric yeah. charge. So they're like, ooh, yeah. balloon time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a crazy behavior. But I'd never even thought like anything but wind would be involved in it until today yeah yeah that's amazing or a few days ago at least when i saw the study where do you know where it's taken place like what kind of spiders everywhere have you ever seen no i mean like this specific like what kind of spiders they're using um i think they are uh aerogeop spiders all right i'll believe I forget it. the name of them it means nothing to but me but they're way. at university of bristol so they're okay. in england I love it. It's very, very England. It's very England episode. <laughs> very British. Very British. But they do have a cool video with their paper. Which oh, nice. I think anyone can watch. Okay. I don't know if that's behind a paywall because I looked this up at school today. Yeah. But hopefully the video is not behind the paywall because it's cute. Yeah. You can see the ballooning behavior nice. and everything. So, that's very yeah. awesome. Okay. If it's not behind a paywall, we will... You know. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll I'll put the link in anyway. Okay, sounds good. Cool. Cool. Okay. So, so, wow, it's been a long day. It's been a long day. <laughs> All right, so um, if you liked this episode or liked any episode, yeah. please rate, review, subscribe. We're trying to beat a couple of <laughs> conspiracy theory podcasts. Paranormal Paranormal podcasts. that are on the top 200 Science, Science and medicine, iTunes podcast some, charts. Some dentist podcasts that look like they'll put you <laughs> right to sleep. No offense. No offense. But it does look dentist. like they will inject you with, um, <laughs> no, wait, what's the, when they put, yeah, no, I thought that was like a laughing gas, but it does make you fall asleep yeah. too. Yeah. Maybe. Anyways, we're trying, we're trying to beat some, yeah. some pods. And we're I, trying to get in th- these charts. So there was. An intelligent design podcast, and if it comes back, hashtag intelligent resign. (laughs) (laughs) We're definitely trying to beat that podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so keep your eyes peeled for that, and rate, review, subscribe. Also, thanks to Caitlin for our, Caitlin Friesen for our our design, and thanks to Artichoke for our theme music, Mary Anning, and thank you all for listening. Yeah, we love our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, give us feedback, give us whatever you want. Say hi. Say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Oh, you can follow us at StemFatalPod on Twitter, on Facebook, and you can email us at StemFatalPod at gmail.com. Woo, woo, woo. Woo, So many ways to get in touch. (laughs) All right. Stem (laughs) you later. later.